beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are plenty of things on earth that can seem small to us, but are really very big. You can think of perhaps the sun. Here on earth we can, we can cover the sun with, with the palm of our hand, but in reality you could fit 1.3 million earths inside the sun. Or you can think of the mountains as they look here, from here in, in Monarch. They, they look fairly small to, to us, but, but they're really far bigger. You don't realize that until you really drive up into them. The, the devastation in Florida from Hurricane Ian might seem small to us because we can only see a few pictures here and there, but, but in reality it's one of the biggest recorded disasters in North America. In the same way, our sin and misery, our corruption, our depravity can seem smaller to us than it really is. We saw a couple of weeks ago, congregation, from Lord's Day 2 of the Catechism, how Christ, through the law, teaches us our misery, our depravity, the perfection He demands from, from, from us through His law is impossible for us. Because as the Bible-based answer to question 5 reminds us, you and I are prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That's a confession of our depravity. But it's all too easy to see, or not to see, or even to forget how big of a problem our depravity and our corruption really is. We think we can handle it on our own. Just like the boy who might look at the Rocky Mountains here in Monarch and think he can climb them all without any, any help. We look at our depravity and think we can conquer it in our own strength, or at least partially. And when we fail, as we always do, we either stubbornly keep trying and get nowhere, or we give up and decide we may as well just accept our depravity, our corruption as a minor thing, or even as a lie. We may try to convince ourselves as so many sadly already have in today's confused world in its confusion concerning sexuality, God made me this way. Even those of us who by grace are true Christians don't always see the enormity of our depravity. We too, congregation, can fall into the trap of thinking that we can conquer our corruption in our own strength. We too can become comfortable with our remaining sinfulness. And we too often can take credit for the good works that we do instead of giving all the praise to God alone. What does all of this show? It shows us that all of us too easily fail to see the bigness, the magnitude of our depravity. But God in His Word and by His grace, opens our eyes. He shows us the magnitude of our depravity. For what purpose? So that we, so that you, so that I would each confess our absolute need of Him and His regenerating work and throw ourselves into total dependence on Him. That's the purpose, congregation, we need to remember as we consider this solemn, you could even really say a very heavy scriptural teaching of Lord's Day 3 of our Heidelberg Catechism. 
The magnitude of our depravity is not meant to drown you and me into hopeless despair and passivity, but rather to lead us into active, humble dependence on God, the life-giving and life-renewing God. That's the aim of Scripture. That's the aim of this Lord's Day. And that's the aim of this message which I've entitled, God Shows Us the Magnitude of Our Depravity. And we'll follow here the framework of Lord's Day 3 as we consider three ways that he shows us this, our depravity. First, he shows us the sharp contrast to it. Second, he shows us the dreadful source of it. And third, he shows us the sobering extent of it. So first, he shows us the sharp contrast to our depravity. The question asked in, in question six Did God then create man so wicked and perverse highlights for us the way a sinner confronted with his depravity naturally responds. He tries to shift his responsibility. It's God's fault I'm this way. But the answer to the question is not just a resounding no, by no means. No, rather the answer continues with a clear snapshot of man as God originally made him. Look at that answer again, question six. By no means did God create man so wicked and perverse, but God created man good. And after his own image, in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. That's the snapshot of man as God originally made him. We read about it in Genesis 1. What a sharp contrast that snapshot is to the snapshot of man today. Man in his depravity. We read about that in Genesis 3. What a contrast it is to you and to me who are unable to keep God's law of perfect love. Who are prone by nature to hate God and our neighbor. And if if you will, notice with me two things in this contrast. First of all, think about God's creation of man, how he made him. God created man good. Genesis 1 verse 31 tells us that what God saw when he looked at his finished creation, including his creation of man. Behold, in other words, get this, pay attention now. It was very or exceedingly, or you could translate perfectly, Good. Try to imagine that. This was true of all of God's creation, but especially also of man. There was no imperfection, no ugliness, no blemish, no evil in any part of man. He never had an evil thought. He never spoke an evil word. He never did an evil act. He was created as one who was perfectly able and willing to do God's will. Yes, he was created as one who actually did fulfill God's will willingly and perfectly. God created man good. He created him exceedingly, perfectly good. What's more, he created man after his own image. In Genesis 1 verse 26, we read that God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. 
That's what God determined to do. And in case, just in case we think that God cannot do what he determines to do, verse, verse 27 tells us what? Children, some of you have memorized it this past week. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. But what does that mean? What does it mean that God, or that man was created in God's image? It doesn't mean that man was God. It means that he was like God. He reflected God. He, he resembled God. He represented God. What an amazing honor that was. It's hard to imagine how glorious that, that must have been. Paul, Paul hints at it in the New Testament when he says in Ephesians 4 that the new man, the regen, regenerated man, is created in true righteousness and holiness. That's the essence of God's image, true righteousness and holiness. Man was not made, God did not make man morally neutral, but perfectly righteous in perfect conformity to God and his law. From his very first breath, man loved God perfectly. And with all, with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. And he loved his neighbor perfectly as himself. And from his very first breath, man in his thoughts, in his desires, in his will, in his entire being, body and soul was truly holy. Perfectly pure totally set apart and perfectly united in total and unceasing devotion to God. God made man exceedingly good. God made man in his own image, in true righteousness and holiness. But what a difference to you who you and I are now by nature. Gone is the goodness man was created with. And what is in its place? Over and over the Bible tells us what God sees now when he looks at man. Genesis 6 verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination or intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Just, just think about that verse again. Instead of goodness is evil. Great evil, only evil, in every imagination continually evil. And God says, the flood didn't change things because God says basically the same thing about man after the flood in Genesis 8 verse 21. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. We sang of it, there is none from Psalm 53, there is none that does good. There is not a just man upon earth, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, that does good and sins not. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And man doesn't get any better in the New Testament. Paul confirms that in Romans 3 when he quotes those, those two psalms that say there is none that does good. But what about our being made in God's image? Well, the Bible makes clear that we still are made in the image of God in the sense that we still have, have value and dignity. We are not animals. But the reality is that the image of God man was created in, created in has been corrupted, disgraced, defaced, and shattered. Instead of being like God, instead of reflecting Him, resembling Him, and representing Him, we by nature reject Him 
revile him and rebel against him. Instead of being truly righteous and holy, we have become unrighteous and wicked, unholy and defiled. To go back to what the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, God made man upright, but he has sought out many schemes or many rebellious plans. O congregation, it's when you see your depravity against God's original creation of man that you begin to really see its magnitude. Our depravity is not just a matter of some isolated wrong thoughts or bad words here and there that if you try hard enough you can, you can fix. No, your depravity as well as mine. The depravity that reveals itself in, 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 in evil thoughts, in lustful and perverted desires, in selfish acts, in harsh words and in hot tempers. It's a complete corruption of how God made We aren't just people who sin. We're people who are sinners. And it isn't God's fault. The thought that God made me this way when when it's an excuse for sin, whether it's a sinful desire or a sinful act, is a lie of the devil to get you to make peace with sin. Don't give in to it. And if you have, repent. But it's not just God's creation of man that is in sharp contrast to our depravity. It's also God's purpose for man. God's purpose for man, according to the catechism, was that he would rightly know, heartily love, and live with God, his creator, in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. In other words, God created man to know him, to have a relationship with him, to to dwell with him in holy and happy and sweet communion and fellowship with him. And to glorify him. That was his purpose for man. But what is a sad reality? Read Romans 1. We don't rightly know God by nature. We look at the creation around us. The glory of God. And we don't use it to glorify him as God. We are not thankful to him for it, but instead we change the truth of God into a lie and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Oh, what a sharp contrast in God's purpose of man to our depravity. You know, maybe you've seen the before and after pictures of the, of the devastation uh, from Hurricane Ian in Florida. Or maybe you've seen before and after pictures from sites in, in Ukraine that have been, have been hit by drones and missiles. But pictures like that, before and after pictures, can help you to appreciate the magnitude, the bigness of the devastation. In congregation, the Bible gives us a picture, a before picture, in God's creation of man and with his purpose for man. And, but the after, pic, the after picture is this, man and his depravity and his corruption and congregation... The after picture is a picture of you and of me by nature. God holds up these two pictures before us tonight in order to show us the magnitude of our depravity. Do you see it? And does it lead you even now to humbly confess your need of him? and to throw yourself in total dependence upon his grace. 
It should. It should. But we are proud people. And we try to look for another way out. We think maybe, just maybe, somehow we can save ourselves. Maybe if, if we had a better government. Or maybe if we could just have a fresh start someplace else with someone else. Maybe if we do a few more good works or give some more money. Maybe then we can improve ourselves. Maybe then we can cure ourselves or help to cure ourselves of our sin and evil. Maybe then we can finally shake off our depravity. But that brings us to our second point. God doesn't just show us the sharp contrast to our depravity. He also shows us the dreadful source of our depravity. Since God did not make man wicked and perverse, the next question, question 7 in Lord's Day 3, asks, from where then proceeds this depravity of human nature? And the answer is, is devastating for ourselves. From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. Hence, or from now on, our nature, from then on, our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. The source of our depravity, congregation, is Adam and Eve's fall into sin. It's what we read about in Genesis 3. Probably, maybe except for the chapters in the Bible about the crucifixion of the Messiah, it's probably the saddest chapter in the entire Bible. You remember, you remember what happened, children? Only two chapters after God's creation of man, his glorious creation, the serpent, which the Bible later identifies as Satan, comes and tempts Eve. He sneakily twists God's word to make him look like a harsh master. Yea, has God said, he says to Eve, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What should Eve have done at this point? She should have resisted him. She should have ruled over this creature as God had commanded her and Adam to do in Genesis 1. But instead, no, instead she listens to him and she talks with him. She foolishly considers the possibility that God maybe isn't really all that good. And it only takes one more reply from Satan a reply that openly contradicts and God's word and asserts that God is keeping Adam and Eve from something good by his command to, eat from the, to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she listens and she takes that fruit and she eats and she gives to her husband with her and he eats. God shows us in Genesis 3 that the source of our depravity is the real historical fall of Adam and Eve. And it's a dreadful source for two reasons. First of all, the actual event of Adam and Eve's fall and disobedience was dreadful. I mean, think about where Adam and Eve were. They were in paradise. They were not just in the world which God had made and called very good. In a, in a world that where the entire creation works together in perfect peace and harmony. They were in paradise. They were in Eden, in the garden of God. The place where Genesis 2 tells us God had put them and where God had made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
They were in the garden where God had told them they could freely eat of every one of those trees except for one. They were in a place where they enjoyed perfect fellowship with each other and with God. They had everything they needed. Work, work was a joy and a delight, not a burden. There was no shame. There was no sorrow. There was no pain. There was no death. But they threw it all away with one bite. In spite of everything God had given them, in spite of the perfect fellowship and harmony and peace they enjoyed, they fell. They disobeyed God's command not to eat of that tree. And the moment they did, everything changed. Instead of fellowship with each other and God, they felt the shame of their nakedness. And they tried to sew fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. They tried to hide from God among the trees. They dodged their responsibility. Adam blamed God. The woman whom you gave me and Eve blamed the serpent. And the consequences of their sin were sorrow, pain, friction in marriage, thorns and thistles, difficulty in providing food, and ultimately death. God even expelled them from the garden. He drove them out so that they would not take the tree of life. Paradise was lost. And it was lost not because of Adam and Eve's ignorance. It wasn't that they didn't know about God's command not to eat of that tree. It wasn't that they didn't know what God said would happen if they ate of it. It wasn't that they had just made an innocent mistake. No, Genesis 2 tells us that the Lord God clearly commanded the man not to eat of that tree. He had clearly warned him that in the day that he should eat of it, he would surely die. Adam and Eve knew what they were doing. Yes, the serpent had deceived Eve, but only because Eve had allowed him to. Oh, do you see with me, congregation? What a tragic, what a dreadful event Adam and Eve's fall was. Oh, how dreadful then must be our depravity that flows from it. Do we believe that, congregation? You say, of course, pastor, of course we do. We're, we're reformed, we believe total depravity. But do we really? Do we really believe that that event was so dreadful? Let me ask it this way. What do you think of sin? What do you think of your sin? What do you think of your own disobedience toward God? What do you think of your sin this morning? The sin of last week? The sin of Friday night? What do you think of your own depravity and corruption that is a fountain of all of your actual sins? Is it dreadful and disgusting to you? Do you loathe it? Does it concern you at all? Or is it something you just shrug your shoulders at and say, I'll worry about it later? You just take a laid-back approach to it. Or is it something... Is it something that drives you to your knees so that like the tax collector in one of Jesus' parables, 
you don't dare to raise even your eyes to heaven. But you smite your chest. You say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Congregation, can I ask the question? How many tax collectors, how many people like that tax collector are here tonight? How many of us, and I include myself here, how many of us don't have to repent so often of living and praying more like the self-righteous Pharisee, blind to the magnitude and the dreadfulness of our depravity? Lord, open our eyes. The fall and disobedience of Adam and Eve is a dreadful source of our depravity. Not only was the event dreadful in itself, but it was dreadful in its effects. You see, Adam and Eve weren't acting simply on their own behalf. They were acting, as particularly Adam, was acting on behalf of all humanity. He was representing all people in his relationship with God. And so when he ate that fruit... When he disobeyed God's command, he disobeyed it as our representative. What that means is this. The guilt of Adam's sin is not just his guilt. It's ours. It's everyone's. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Romans 5 verse 12 puts it this way. By one man, referring to Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon or spread to all men for that all have sinned. We don't like to hear this congregation because we want to be our own person. But Romans 5 makes it clear that we are not. We are either in Adam and therefore condemned to death on account of his disobedience and guilt, or we are in Christ and receive the gift of life on account of his obedience and righteousness. This is the reality whether we like it or not. We don't have a say in the matter. You can't be neutral. You cannot be your own man. You cannot make your own deal with God. By nature, we are all in Adam. And therefore, we are guilty in God's sight and under his wrath. By nature. Universal guilt is one of the dreadful effects of Adam's fall. But there is also universal corruption, which, together with the guilt we share in Adam, is sometimes called original sin. Not only is it, you see, that in Adam's fall we sinned all, but also by Adam's fall we became corrupted all. Instead of being made in true righteousness and holiness, As David says in Psalm 51, we are now conceived and born in sin and iniquity. We are sinners to the core. From the very beginning of our existence in our mother's womb. And that's true of everyone by nature. Not just of mass murderers, not just of rapists, but also of good upstanding citizens. Yes, also of preachers and pastors and of baptized children and of church members. Congregation, the Bible's teaching is clear. By nature, you and I are so corrupt that we are sinners to the core. 
That's why, congregation, no other human being can save you. That's why we can't save ourselves. That's why we can't improve ourselves. That's why we can't cure ourselves of our depravity because from this corruption, from this woeful source, as Article 15 of our Belgian Confession describes it, sin always flows forth as water from a fountain. Martin Luther compared it to a man's beard, which he shaves in the morning so his face looks clean, but already in the afternoon or the next day it appears, the, the, the stubble appears again. Oh, how dreadful is this universal corruption, this effect of Adam's fall and disobedience. It never goes away in this life. Not even in believers. They constantly have to fight against the corruption of the flesh. And this reality, congregation, should make them, it should make you tonight as a believer sigh and long for heaven when sin will be no more. Is that your experience? Do you see with me, congregation, how Adam and Eve's fall and disobedience is a dreadful source? of our depravity? And does it help you to see the seriousness, the magnitude of your own depravity? Does it help you to see the folly of thinking that you can save yourself? Does it help you to see your need of God's almighty, forgiving and transforming grace, not just once, but over and over again? Does it make you more dependent on God? That's, that's, that's the purpose. That's why God shows us the magnitude of our depravity. And yet how often don't we still try to live the Christian life completely or even partially independent of God? We might admit we're not perfect, but inwardly we think and live as if we're not really all that bad. And this brings us to, to our third point. God shows us the magnitude of our depravity not only by showing the sharp contrast to it, and the dreadful source of it, but lastly also by showing the sobering extent of it. That's the focus of question, question and answer 8 in Lord's Day 3. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. What this answer tells us, congregation, is that our depravity is so extensive that it corrupts our entire being and reveals our total dependence on the Spirit's regenerating work. It corrupts our entire being. It's what we call total depravity. But what does that mean? It means that by nature we are thoroughly, thoroughly depraved. We are like a, a completely rotten apple, rot, rotten to its core. There's not a shred of real goodness, true goodness as God defines it. The goodness that satisfies His will, fulfills His plan in us. We are completely incapable of doing any good. We can't think any good. We can't desire any good. And we can't do any good. But is that really true? Yes, it is. Again, we think of that repeated text in the Bible. There is none that does good. And the Bible describes us in other places as well as, as slaves to sin. 
and dead in sin by nature, which means not, not just that we don't do good, but we can't do good any more than a slave can have two masters or a dead person can breathe. In our flesh dwells no good thing. All our righteousnesses, all that we think of as our righteousness are like filthy rags, Isaiah says, before God. And doesn't Genesis 3 confirm this? Do you see Adam and Eve doing any good after they ate of the fruit? What do we see instead? We see them hiding from God. We see them blaming God, the God who is good and who only has did good to them. We see them instead really inclined toward all wickedness. And that's, that's who we too are by nature. That's who you are. That's who I am. Oh, we may not do every deed, every evil thing imaginable, but there is no evil that our heart is not inclined to. That's a scary thought. There is no evil that your and my heart is not inclined to by nature. Have you ever thought of yourself as capable of committing and even inclined to commit the worst sin, the worst evil? We naturally want to resist that idea to say we would never do something like that. But congregation, if David, whom the Bible describes the man after God's own heart, the man after God's own heart, if David could steal Uriah's wife, commit adultery with her, and then murder her husband, how can we say How can even the holiest Christian here among us say, I would never do that? It's this reality, beloved, the reality that in nature we are inclined to all evil that undergirds Paul's warning. After he describes all the unbelief and the wickedness of the Israelites in the wilderness, his warning in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's a sobering sobering truth that we are thoroughly, totally depraved. And it reveals our total dependence on the Spirit's regenerating work for our entire salvation from start to finish for any real good that we do and for any true repentance and faith. Jesus put it this way to to Nicodemus in John 3, verse 3. We we know this passage so well. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he explains what he means a couple of verses later when he says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You know, the most sobering thing about the extent of our depravity is this. That by nature, we can't and we won't choose Christ, who is the greatest good. By nature, we don't even want Christ. We can't want Him. By nature, we're no different and no better than the people who crucified Christ. That's the magnitude of our depravity. It's total. And it leaves us, congregation, with only one way out. Regeneration. 
We need the Spirit to give us a new heart, to take out the heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh. We need the Spirit to breathe life into our dead souls, just like the dead bodies in Ezekiel's vision needed the Spirit to breathe life into them so that they would live. That's what I need. That's what you need. This is what it comes down to. You must be born again. And that's something only the sovereign and the divine Spirit of God can do. Oh, how humbling this is for all of us. It is humbling for all of you who are believers here this day. All of you who are in Christ. Because it reminds you, it reminds us that the reason we are believers, the reason we are in Christ, the reason we are saved is not because of anything in ourselves. It's because of everything in God. Why is it, uh, why is it that Paul says you are, uh, you are no longer spiritually dead, dead in sins and trespasses in which you once walked? It's because, he says in Ephesians 2, you have been saved by glorious grace, free and sovereign grace, not by works. It's because God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, has quickened, has made us alive even while we were dead in sins. He has made us alive together with Christ. He has created, it's because he has created us in Christ Jesus through his Holy Spirit. A new creation. And believers remain dependent upon that same spirit all, of, all their life long for all the good works they do. You can think of it this way. We are like the lights in, our, in the church. As long as the, the power stays on, the lights shine. But as soon as that power is cut like it was this morning, there's no more light. That is what we are like. Every moment our, of our life, we are dependent on not just the spirit's initial regenerating work, but also his ongoing renewing work. You take the spirit away from us and we would instantly, instantly be just as depraved as those who are yet unconverted. You know what that means, beloved? It means that there is no no basis for any boasting among believers. And there is every reason to cast ourselves entirely on the mercy of God in humble dependence on Him. It means we should pray, to, pray for the Spirit's work to grow and increase in our lives and to work His grace of regeneration in the lives of, of our loved ones, in the lives of those around us. And it means that we should faithfully and expectantly proclaim the gospel because we know that the Spirit regenerates sinners through His Word, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What about you who are outside of Christ tonight? Maybe you've been listening to this. You've you've heard the magnitude of your depravity and how it it makes you completely dependent on the Spirit's regenerating work. And and, and maybe you think, well, what's the point? If I can't do anything about my salvation, I may as well just give up. I may as well just live hopelessly in in despair. or, Or I may as well just live a life of sin. If that's your response, you don't understand. Our absolute need for independence of the Spirit's regenerating work is not a reason for hopelessness and despair, and it's not an excuse for sin. 
It's your only hope. You see, because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of God. The Almighty God who created life, who, who, who made man in the beginning. The Creator God, the Almighty God, and the seeking God, who when Adam and Eve fell, came into the garden and came and asked, Adam, where are you? And because the Spirit of God is a, the, the God, because God is not only the seeking God and the Almighty Creator God, but He is also the Savior God, as Genesis 3 verse 15 tells us. Yes, He is the Spirit of life and the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And therefore, congregation, He is most willing to regenerate lost and totally depraved sinners. And he does it, he does it by his word. A word that calls you and that invites you and that commands us all to come to Jesus. And you will find rest for your souls. To come to the Christ who is all. Beloved, the gospel is that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior for totally depraved sinners. Come to him then. Whoever you are, come to him with all the magnitude of your depravity and humbly cast yourself on him because the magnitude of his grace is infinitely bigger. Infinitely bigger than your depravity, than your sin, than your corruption. So come. Come to him for mercy. He will not turn you away. Amen. Lord our God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit without whom we would have no hope We thank you for who you are as a triune God, the triune Savior God. We pray even now that you would work by your Holy Spirit, regenerating sinners here among us tonight and renewing, reviving your people by your almighty and sovereign grace. Lord, forgive us for minimizing and downplaying the seriousness of sin, perhaps not consciously, but in the way we live, in the way we respond, in the way we try and think that somehow it is our works that will, will save us or, or something else and not Christ. We pray, Lord, then, that you would so work by your Spirit even tonight and, and help us to see not only the magnitude of our depravity, but the infinitely greater magnitude of your grace. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.